You may have heard of the popular culture magazine called Vanity Fair. And it's a magazine that's dedicated to pop culture, fashion and, and uh, current affairs. And I'm not saying that I endorse that magazine, but I want to use it as an illustration. What I'm saying is that it reveals the life of some of the rich and famous. They're some of the most popular people on the planet that have graced the cover of this magazine. Some of you may look at Time or maybe Fortune 500. And if Solomon were alive today, and if, or if those magazines, Vanity Fair, Time, or Fortune 500, or whatever the case may be, any of those popular magazines, if they were around at the time of Solomon, Solomon's face would have graced the cover of every one of those magazines on multiple occasions. He was so well known. He was not only known for his wisdom, but he was known for his wealth. He was known for the extravagance of his lifestyle. He was known for the many wives that he had. He would have made a person like Hugh Hefner and his six blondes look like a beginner. But Solomon was extremely well-known. And in this, because he was well-known and so popular and so rich, he was inspired to write the book of Ecclesiastes. When you read the book of Ecclesiastes, if you're not careful, it can be a really depressing book. <laughs> but you have to read it in the right light. He's, read, he's writing this from a human perspective. He's writing it from the man's way, I should say, of looking at life. The word vanity, the English word vanity is mentioned over 37 times, or is mentioned 37 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. I want you to take a look at chapter 1 and verse 2, because you get no further, further than verse 2, and the word vanity is mentioned five times. It says, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Man, this is a book that I want to study. That's really encouraging to my heart. And the book almost ends the same way it starts. Flip over to chapter 12, if you will, please. Take a look at verse 8. It starts out with these five words of uh, this, this uh, repeated this five, uh, the, the word vanity five times, and then it's ending almost the same way. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 8, the Bible says, Vanities of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. I think the first question we need to ask ourselves, well then, if he's using this word vanity, what does it mean? Uh, the word, it means emptiness. It means meaninglessness. It's the quality of having no value, no significance. It's a result of being futile. So what is he saying here? He's saying, verse 2, all is empty of emptiness, saith the preacher. All is empty and there is no value in anything. All is futile. That's pretty depressing. It's almost like those that have the worldview of all that you do is, all that there is to life is just this life and after life, that's it, you die. It, it's almost 
uh, sadistic, that there's, there's no joy in life, there's no happiness in life, that everything in life is vanity? Well, the book of Ecclesiastes is to address the, the meaning of life. It's to address the issues of the meaning of life, that, that things are not empty and that things are, 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 are significant. And Ecclesiastes really helps us answer some of these questions, like, why do I exist? It, it helps us in uh, answering the question, what is the purpose of my life? You know, let me just stop there and say, so many times people say, will say, God, what is your will for my life? That's selfish. You say, what? Wait a second. It's not what is your will for my life, it is what is your will? And then I go do it. If you're looking at what is your will for my life, what is the purpose of my life? I can tell you the purpose of everyone's life here. It is to glorify God. That is your purpose. As slaves of the Most High King, as servants of the Most High King, it is not, God, what is your will for my life, but what is your will, and that will work itself out in my life. Because so many times what we're doing is, well, I'm wondering if I'm in God's will. I wonder if this is God's will for my life. I wonder if this is God's will for my life. No. What is your will for me today, God? What do you want me to do today? So Ecclesiastes helps give us purpose and find meaning and significance for our life. It helps, it helps us make our life, if you will, worthwhile. Solomon, who I believe is the writer of Ecclesiastes, this is what he does. He goes to the laboratory of life and he decides that he's going to conduct some experiments to find out the answers to these questions. Solomon takes on seven experiences and it starts in chapter one, and we're not going to look at all seven, but he starts in chapter one and he goes all the way through chapter two. He conducts seven experiments almost like a scientist would, and he starts to, to do the experiments, and then he weighs the evidence, and he, he compares the evidence to what he knows to be true. This morning, I want us to be able to look at three of the experiments that Solomon conducted for us to be able to understand the problem with pleasure or the pleasure problem. So I guess I would ask you this morning, what are the pleasures, like Solomon asked, he asked himself, he, he, and, and I, I'll ask you this morning, what are the pleasures of life that people experience, or that people experiment with to gain meaning and fulfillment? So what are the pleasures of life that people experiment with to gain uh, to gain meaning and fulfillment. First, I want us to take a look at experiment number one. In your notes there, if you're taking notes, number one, your life is about fun. Your life is about fun. Take a look at Ecclesiastes 2, 1 and 2. And I said in my heart, go now, I will prove thee with myrrh. Therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of myrrh, what doeth it? You know, I'm not trying to be a killjoy, and neither is Solomon. But let's face the facts that there are, there's a lot of things in life that just aren't fun. There are a whole lot of things in life that aren't fun. But if you take your worldview 
from television or from the internet or from Hollywood, you'll find that if it's not fun and if it's not pleasurable and if it's not enjoyable to you, then you should not be a part of it. You know, all that you ought to be doing is just having a good time. And that's what this life was meant for. And make sure that you get all you can in this life and enjoy all you can in this life. And all your life ought to be is about pleasure. You know what I found in my life? I found that I learn more in pain than I do in pleasure. I learn more in difficulty than I do in delight many times. But the world would tell you that, hey, if it's not pleasurable, if it's painful, if it's not, if it's not meeting your needs, if it's not satisfactory to you, then you should get out. You say, how do you know that? Because people, I've heard people say uh, on, on different occasions, well, I just, I'm going to bail on my marriage. Why? It's just not fun anymore. Oh, okay. Well, welcome to the real world. It, it's just not, it, it's not exciting anymore. This is, the, this is the problem with pleasure when you live for pleasure alone. What I've noticed, and it's pretty sad, I've noticed that this philosophy has also made its way into the church. And it's very visibly, I, you know, because I'm a preacher, I visit websites and that type of thing. And so I'll visit websites of different churches and I'll see on there that some of the prominent themes in, on church websites is, man, come to our church because uh, our church is fun and this is where you can go to have a good time and a fun time and the emphasis is on fun. And look, I'm not saying that church should be enjoyable. I don't want you leaving here and saying, man, that was just terrible. I hated church. No, not at all. That's not what I'm saying. So don't mistake me. I hope that your time here is enjoyable. But folks, my main emphasis here is not to be an entertainer for you, not for you to have fun. My main emphasis here is to give you the word of God. And if that hurts sometimes, so be it. See, the major emphasis shouldn't be on a church that creates an atmosphere of fun. Let me tell you what the major emphasis ought to be. The major emphasis ought to be on Jesus Christ and him alone and raising him up and lifting him up. The Bible says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Let me tell you something. And, and lifting Jesus up and making Jesus known to people and making Jesus the emphasis of the church, that is extremely enjoyable. That is, that is extremely encouraging. That is extremely uplifting. So Solomon takes on the philosophy, we would say it this way, live and let live. What does he do in verse one? If you're taking notes, letter A, the gaining of experience. So Solomon decides to experiment with finding purpose through the pleasure of fun. He says in verse one, and I said in my heart, go now, go to now and I will prove. If you're in the highlight, if you happen to mark in your Bible, you may want to circle or highlight that word. I will prove thee with myrrh. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. Solomon says he's going to prove something. So he's going to experiment something. He's going to, he's going to test or gain experience by way of experimenting with what we would call today the party scene. And he looks to the superficial way of living, making life out to be all fun and games. That life is just a party. Man, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you may die. And there, no, there, is no, there is no debating the fact that our society, it is pleasure-driven. 
It is pleasure-driven. We, we really have gone mad about fun. You say, how do you know this? You ever notice now that if you pay attention, it's not about going on vacations any longer. It's about buying an experience. I want you to buy this experience. Because, I mean, we don't want you necessarily to have things anymore. It's not about things. So the world's finally figuring that out. It's not about things. Things we figured out, that we really don't think that can fill. So we want you to buy this experience. You want happiness? Buy this experience. The secret to happiness is having these experiences in your life. And that's what the world's trying to get us to do to have meaning, have fulfillment. And some people will go to any amount of money to buy experiences. But I got a question for you. If this is the way to gain meaning, fulfillment, and happiness, what happens if you can't afford to buy an experience? Then I guess you're not going to have a meaningful life. How about this question? What if your last experience was not as great as your previous experience? What if your experience has led you to debt, divorce, or debauchery? You know, all these questions and more could, could, be, uh, could, could be asked and, 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 and could be proposed to those that are out there trying to get us to understand that we ought to buy experiences, but they can't give a satisfactory answer to the fulfillment and meaning of life. See, there's a problem with living for pleasure. Why are people trying to buy experiences today? The reason being is because they're trying to escape the brokenness and the burdens of life. Hey, what happens in Las Vegas? Why? Because I had an experience. Hmm. See, they're building their life on a faulty foundation of fun. Solomon has gained some evidence, and he says, he says here in verse 1, I said in my heart, go now, go to now, I will prove thee with myrrh, therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. Here is, not only is there the giving of evidence, uh, the, the gaining of experience, we have letter B, the giving of evidence. It is also vanity, and then he said, in verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of myrrh, what doeth it? The evidence of basing one's life on fun and games, the party scenes, is that it's mad. Solomon, you say, well, pastor, Solomon's saying that we should not laugh or enjoy life? No. Matter of fact, uh, Solomon's not saying that at all. What he's saying is, he's saying that living for pleasure and laughter alone will not give meaning and fulfillment. That our life should not be based upon that. When you base your life only upon good times, you know what he's saying here? He's saying it's mad. He's saying that it clouds judgment. When, when your life is all only about pleasure and that's your total goal, you will, you will have clouded judgment. You will make wrong decisions. 
See, our life can't be based upon just pleasure or fun. It must be based upon the principles of God's word. There are some things that God tells us that, that are sometimes hard to do and at first may not be pleasurable, but in the end, they bring pleasure. But when you base your life only on pleasure, what you're going to find is that you can't make very sound decisions. See, you lose all sense of being able to judge life properly. See, rather than face life as it is, the fun seeker, the party animal, if you will, drowns the hard facts of life in the sea of fun. See, this is what Solomon's saying, that look, you're not facing life in reality. You've got to look at life the way that it really is. See, we understand this, but life is no laughing matter. Some people laugh themselves all the way to the grave. But listen, friends, there's nothing funny. There is nothing funny about the deathbed of someone who dies without Christ. See, failure to take life seriously is dangerous. It could cost you for all of eternity, Solomon says. So his, his judgment comes down to, he says that fun and games, the party life will not satisfy. Experiment number two, your life is about foolishness. So he says, first, your life is about fun. You, you can't base it on that. It's vanity. It's empty. It's futile. Then he says, your life is about foolishness. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 3, I sought in mine heart to give. You might want to underline that word. Myself to wine, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of men which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. Your life is about foolishness. He mentioned the first thing of foolishness, the foolishness of wine. The foolishness of wine. I said you might want to mark those words to give. It means to carry off. It means to seize. So Solomon says that his heart's desire was to be carried off or to seize by wine. Now, I don't believe, according to the scriptures here, that Solomon was a drunkard, that he got involved with that. You say, well, how could you say that? Because of the next phrase, it says, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom. Have you ever seen a drunk? See him staggering down the street? He has no idea of wisdom. He can't think straight. He can't walk straight. And what he's saying is, wait a second, I, I have, I'm acquainting my heart still with wisdom. So he still has his mind, but what are, you, then what are you saying, Pastor? What is he saying about this foolishness of wine? But he did indulge in the worldly pleasure of alcohol. See, he experimented with alcohol as means to alleviate pain. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 20, if you will, please. He's saying that I will drink to be able to help alleviate pain. I will drink for some pleasure to be able to help me get through the difficult times. The Bible talks much about wine and about strong drink, and it tells us that it does not remove pain, but that it actually adds pain. 
Now, I know that this statement that I'm going to make is not very popular in 21st century church because of what the church has undertaken, but I believe that the Bible plainly teaches us that Christians should not drink. Well, we know that, Pastor. We shouldn't get drunk. No, that Christians should not drink. Well, Pastor, we understand that, that a Christian shouldn't lose control of their body. No, that Christians should not drink. Not even sociably. Well, wait a second, Pastor. Paul talked to Timothy, and he said, Timothy, take a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Number one, that was for a medicinal purpose. Okay. Number two, I'm not Paul, and you're not Timothy. Well, wait a second, Pastor. The Bible says that in Ephesians chapter uh, 5 that uh, we should not be drunk with wine, whereas in excess, but we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, he's using that as an illustration. He's not saying that therefore you can go and drink wine. He's saying as someone who is totally consumed with alcohol, you shouldn't be consumed with alcohol, that it controls your body. Just like you shouldn't be consumed with that, you should be consumed and controlled by the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to preach what the Bible says. And Proverbs chapter 20, here we go. It doesn't say drunkenness here. It doesn't say drunkenness. Take a look at Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1. And I'm not trying to make enemies. But take a look at what it says. Wine is a mocker. It doesn't say drunkenness is a mocker. It says wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby, you want to say those last three words for me, is not wise. The foolishness of wine. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 20. Be not among wine bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh. Take a look at Proverbs chapter 23, verse 29. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babblings? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of the mast. They have stricken me, thou shalt say, and I was not sick. They have beat me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. You know, every time I look in Scripture, say just about every time I look in Scripture, when I look at wine or alcohol or strong drink, it always has a negative connotation. Say, well, wait, 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 Pastor. 
Jesus gave wine at the wedding. Oh, yes, he did. You might want to study that a little bit more. You know, there's over 16 words, 16 words, different words for the word wine in the Bible. It's interesting because it's sort of like our word love. You know, our word love, there's only, there's only, we only have one word for love, right? But in the Bible, there's three different words for love. Hmm. That's why we ought to be like the Berean Christians and search the scriptures. See what the Bible has to say. You say, well, Pastor, I just disagree with you. You have every right to disagree with me, but you don't have any right to disagree with the Bible. So this is what I'm going to tell you to do. Go study the Word. Go study the Word. See, you don't answer to me. I'm just telling you. What Solomon said, he said there's foolishness in wine. He wasn't a drunkard. No, it says he still had his wisdom. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't living a lifestyle that was totally consumed by alcohol. He can't even think straight. No, he's saying that even to try and alleviate pain from my life, this wine will not do it. He experimented with the foolishness of wine, but he also experimented with the foolishness of folly. I didn't figure I'd get too many amens on that last point, so I'm going to try and move on. Now look, folks, let me say something here. Let me just help you. Do you want a pastor to tell you what you want to hear? Or do you want a pastor to say, this is what I believe the Bible is teaching and that we should live by? Again, if you disagree with me, that's okay. But if you study the Word of God and then you disagree with the Word of God, you've got a problem. But just because we don't see eye to eye maybe on a preference, and I'm not saying that that is a preference, I believe that the Bible strictly forbids it. But even if it were a preference, you know, we can still love each other. We can still worship together. And we still praise God together. Because guess, like I, just like I said a few minutes ago, you don't answer to me. You do not answer to me. You answer to God Almighty. But just say that I was wrong on this. Just say I was wrong on it. You know, my position on the subject of alcohol has never, ever caused me to fall into adultery, has never, ever caused me to do things that I can't remember, has never, ever caused me to act like a fool. There might be other things in my life that could cause me to do that. But if I abstain, I don't ever have to worry about alcohol doing that to me. And by the way, 
If I, if I were wrong, which I do not believe I am, but if you take my position, you don't ever, and what I believe is a Bible position, you don't ever have to worry about becoming an alcoholic. And you know, there's probably some people in here that fight that battle. They fight that battle. You say, then, then why do you say this to us, Pastor? I'm not saying so that we can all agree and just all, no, I'm saying it because I want to protect you. Because I don't want to see what Proverbs says, who hath sorrow, who hath woe, who hath babblings. And some of you can testify to the fact of what alcohol has done in the life of your family. So then why... Why play around with arsenic in a cup of water if you can just have pure water itself? The foolishness of wine. Secondly, the foolishness of folly. What is folly? It's senseless behavior. He says here in verse 3, to lay hold on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of men which they should do under heaven all the days of their life. It's when somebody's behavior just doesn't make sense. It's, and, th and this really can come in many forms. It can come because of drink. It can come because of drugs. It can come because of mental issues, of, of, of because of sin. But I think it's safe to say that we've all seen senseless behavior. I want you to think of it this way. It's like when um, a sports team, your sports team, if they're in the championship, and your sports team uh, wins a championship or your sports team loses the championship. I thought it was absolutely amazing that they had to grease the, the, the poles in Philadelphia so that people would not climb. That's senseless behavior. What are you, what are you doing? You know, or you see when your team loses what they do, they turn cars over and they're lighting them on fire and all this kind of stuff. Or your team wins and they're, they're jumping on top of cars and stuff like that. I, that's, what he, that's just senseless behavior. And Solomon said that he gave himself to some of this senseless behavior. It makes no sense. And, and that's the way that he thought that he would have meaning in life. Take a look in, in Hosea chapter 2, if you would, please. Hosea chapter 2. That's towards the end of the Old Testament. Because the Bible talks about this. This senseless behavior. In Hosea chapter 2 and verse 10. The Bible says, And now I will discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and none shall deliver her out of mine hand. You say, well, wait a minute. We were talking about folly. Senseless behavior. And now I will discover her lewdness. That's that same word, Folly. Not only, and it's a senseless behavior. What was this woman doing? She was giving herself to all these different men. That's a senseless behavior. Why? Why, why do women or men do that? They give themselves away and, and they, 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 um, they get involved with other people, multiple, multiple people. Why do they do that? Because they don't see themselves as uh, uh, that they're made in the image of God and that God created them. Hey, folks, when you teach people all their life that all they are is just a higher form of animal life, that's the way that they're going to act. But the Bible doesn't say that. 
The Bible says that we were created, every single one of us were created in the very image of God. And here this, this portion of Scripture in Hosea says that he will discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, how, how, how she acts in a senseless way. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 21, the Bible says, Folly is joy to him that is destitute of wisdom, but a man of understandeth, understanding walketh uprightly. Ecclesiastes 7.25 says, I applied my heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things and to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. Solomon comes to the conclusion that folly was madness as well. Folly clouds the judgment of a person to see life as it really is. So Solomon says the party life or the fun life, that's senseless. That, that has no meaning. The foolishness of life and wine or folly, just acting like an idiot, has no meaning. But then he goes on to number three here, experiment number three. Your life is about fortune. See, most of us would we, dismiss the first two. Man, my life isn't just about fun. I, I, I'm okay with that. I don't just live for pleasure. Oh, my life isn't about folly. And pastor, I, you know, I, I, may, I, I may have a couple drinks here or there, but, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not too concerned about that. I'm good. I can control that. I'm not worried about that. So that, that really doesn't apply to me. I, I think it does, but... But this is where America is right here. This is where we are. Experiment number three, your life is about fortune. I want you to take a look at verses four through 11. I made me great works. I built me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me uh, gardens and orchards. And I planted me trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born into my house. I also had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of the kings and of provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men of music Musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and I increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatsoever my eye desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was the portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on all the labor that I labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Maybe you've heard of the, the effect that some people have come upon them when they buy something new. And this effect, it states that obtaining a new possession often creates a spiral consumption which leads you to acquire more things. You ever notice that when you get something new in your house, like if you, if you paint a room, then you start to notice how all your other rooms look dingy? Or ladies, you get a skirt and then, wait a second, I need a new blouse, I need shoes, I need jewelry, I need, you know. 
as a result, we end up buying things that our previous selves never needed to feel happy or fulfilled. In the book, Overspent American, Why We Want What We Don't Need, sociology professor Juliet Score states, the pressure to upgrade our stock of stuff is relentlessly unidirectional, always ascending. I believe that many people like Solomon are trying to see if this will give a meaning to life. I want you, did you notice when we read the text how many um, personal pronouns it was filled with? I, me, my, mine. This is where pleasure becomes a problem. Solomon is trying to find the meaning of life by making himself the center of life. You know what I call this? I call this portion of scripture the gospel of selfishness. The gospel of selfishness. I want you to take a look in verses four through eight. There's the grand achievement. The scope of the achievement of Solomon and what he accomplished is noted by the use of the plural in here. Verse four, he says, I made me great works, great houses, vineyards. Verse five says, gardens, orchards, all kinds of fruits, multiple orchards with multiple kinds of fruits. Pools of water in verse six. Servants, maidens, servants born in his house. Great provisions of cattle, large and small. In 1 Kings, listen to what it says about what Solomon had on a daily basis for food for his household. 1 Kings 4, 20 through 23. Judah and Israel were many as the sand which is by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and making merry. And Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river unto the land of the Philistines and unto the border of Egypt. They brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now listen. And Solomon's provision for one day was 30 measures of fine flour and three score measures of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 oxen out of the pasture and 100 sheep besides hearts, roebucks, fallow deer, fatted fowl. That's a mess of food. Solomon was definitely a Baptist. In verse 8 we see, it says silver and gold, meaning a multiple. In 1 Kings 10, 21, the Bible says, and all King Solomon drinking vessels were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Why weren't they of silver? It was nothing accounted in the days of Solomon. Silver was just like nothing. Didn't mean it had very little value. It says that he had men singers. He had his own choir, his own entertainment, if you will. It tells us that he indulged in physical intimacy. We know how many wives and concubines he had. He had his own orchestra. It said musical instruments. Solomon had created his own paradise on earth. He created a world within a world. And the best of it all, it was all for him. See, he was living life to the fullest in his own world of pleasure. To most people, this would seem like the life that one would want. Instead, we find that Solomon is faced with a greater truth. Not only do we see the grand achievement, but we see verses 9 through 11, the greater truth. Most people would say, man, if I could only have that life, I would be happy. Solomon finds a greater truth. In verse 11, he says, then I looked. You might want to highlight that word. On all the works of my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. That word look, you know what it means? It means to consider. It means to face the facts. You ever hear somebody say, well, you made your bed, and now you got to lie in it? 
That's exactly what Solomon is saying. He's saying, wait, I made my bed. I, I have these seven experiences, and we're looking at these three here, and I've made my bed. Now I've got a lion, and what it's saying, he's, he's saying, I'm facing the facts. Solomon is now going to give his evaluation of the experiments that he conducted. See, since living for the pleasures of the world, he realizes there's a problem in living for pleasure. The pleasure has a problem. He says it's vanity, it's futile, it's empty, it's nothingness. It's vexation. It's always striving, always wanting more, always having to have more, always never being satisfied. And it has no profit. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, if you would, please. All this pleasure for pleasure's sake has no benefit at all. And if we're not careful, listen, folks, you say, what are you trying to drive home to us, pastor? That as believers, we are not to live for the pleasures of this world. I didn't say that we could not enjoy the world. We couldn't enjoy the things of the world as long as that's not what we live for. I'm not saying that you shouldn't enjoy a vacation. I'm not saying that you shouldn't enjoy a nice home. I'm not saying that you shouldn't enjoy good relationships. I'm not saying those type of things. I'm not saying that you shouldn't enjoy the blessings maybe that God has given you financially. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is if you are living for that, it's empty. You say, well, I'm not living for that. I can guarantee you that most of us are. So how can you say that? If you're honest with yourself, if everything that you had was taken away, if everything that you had was taken away, every dime that you had, homes that you have, cars that you have, relationships that you have, job that you have, if everything was taken away, would your ultimate pleasure still be in Jesus? It's easy for us to sit here in our air-conditioned, comfy pews and say, yes. But then when one thing doesn't go as we've planned, we start to get upset with God. You say, how do you know that? Because I see people drop out of church over the most silliest things. I see people stop serving. Why? Because, God, I've been serving you all this time, and now you've taken this away from me, or you, you've allowed me to have this, this, this disease in my body, or you do that. Wait a second. You can find out real quick, folks. We can find out real quick if we're living for the things of this world, if we're living for fortune, if we're living for pleasure. By just looking at our lives when things start to go wrong, according to our plan, we can find out that we're really not living for the pleasure of God. See, the Bible warns against this style of living. Take a look at John, 1 John chapter 2, if you will, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. For all that is in the world. The psalmist is the example of heeding the warning of not to live. He says in Psalm 119, 37, turn away my eyes from beholding vanity and quicken thou me in thy way. Solomon totally disregarded God's warning. You may say, wait a second, pastor. Wait a second. Now you're going a little too far. How could Solomon disregard God's warning 
when he didn't even have the New Testament. He didn't have 1 John. Well, he did have the Psalms. And it said that I will turn away my eyes from beholding vanity. But let's not be so quick to let Solomon off the hook. He did have a warning. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 16 and 17, the Bible says, but he shall not multiply horses to himself. God is speaking of the king nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall ye multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. This was the instruction of, uh, from God to the king, and he had given it to Solomon, and Solomon did not listen. And before you and I say that we are not called up in living for pleasure alone, the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4, says that we'll be traitor, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. You know what I found, folks? We have everything offered to us. Nothing is unavailable. In Greg Eastbrook's book, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse, he says, he proves that we have almost more of everything today except happiness. He states, the more we have, the unhappier we are because that we, will, we know we will never be able to get all the new things we want. See, folks, we were not, we were not made to live for pleasure. You say, well, why not? What's so bad about it? Well, because pleasure-seeking usually becomes a selfish endeavor. And selfishness destroys true joy. See, sometimes people who live for pleasure take advantage and exploit other people to get what they want. But why else shouldn't I live for pleasure? If you live for pleasure alone, think about this. Enjoyment decreases unless the intensity of pleasure increases. So your enjoyment is going to have to increase. It's going to have to go up every time. And living for pleasure alone can never bring meaning or fulfillment because it only applies to part of the person, not the whole of the person. You say, Pastor, so what's the great truth? Since all the pleasures under the sun cannot satisfy your soul, then we must look beyond this world to the God of heaven. See, the unsatisfying longing is an indication that we were made for the pleasure of God. See, the dissatisfaction that you find in things is to drive us to God. Think about it. If we were able to find ultimate pleasure in this world, then how would we ever recognize our need for God? Why would we ever go to God? We don't, or we wouldn't. See, God wants to use our dissatisfaction to turn us to himself. See, for the people of God, there's meaningful pleasure that comes in the enjoyment of God. And that God sent his son to be our savior, the son Jesus Christ, who resisted all the pleasures of this world 
in order to fulfill the plan of God for our salvation. See, the greatest truth is that pleasure without God is totally empty. But pleasure with God is totally fulfilling. What do you get the most pleasure out of? What do you get the most pleasure out of? Is your enjoyment of God stronger today, more pleasurable today than it has been in the past? Is your life more about pleasure-seeking or seeking after God? Oh, I understand. This message wasn't a shouting message. <laughs> See, this is, a, this is a rubber meets the road kind of message. Now we get rid of all the pretense. We get rid of all the nonsense and we get down to bare bones. I'll be honest with you, I enjoy preaching the shouting messages a little bit more than I pre enjoy preaching the bare bone messages. But let me tell you something. You can count on one thing from this preacher. If it's in the book, you're going to get it. So folks, I think that we all need to take a look at ourselves. What do you get the most enjoyment out of? Is your highlight coming and worshiping corporately together with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is the highlight of your day spending time with God Almighty in prayer and in Bible reading? Do you enjoy God more today than you have in the past? Only you can answer those questions. But I would ask you to take a moment here and evaluate your life. 